James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Well, this morning we're going to work through that passage that Roz just read to us. If you don't have a Bible, the blue Bibles that you see around on the chairs, uh, you're welcome to use. Uh, You're also welcome to take one home if you don't uh, own one. Consider that our gift to you this morning. Well, what hope do you hold on to when life is hard? Maybe you hold on to the hope that things will get better. Maybe that they won't get worse. Or maybe you've got the right amount of uh, optimism. You're, you're just endlessly optimistic. And no matter how difficult circumstances might get, you, you, just, you just know that there's always a silver lining, the sun's going to shine the next day. Or perhaps you've got just the right amount of pessimism to know that, well, things just can't get any worse than what they currently are. How often does life after death come into view for you as your hope when things get hard? How often do you consider eternity as your hope in this life? Uh, There's a well-known phrase which uh, did the rounds when I was young, girl, which I think it's, it's probably still well-known enough today that if I say it, you'll, you'll be familiar with it. That is, pie in the sky when you die. You heard that? Ironically, the phrase was coined by an activist named Joe Hill, or Hillstrom is his name, but known as Joe Hill, who put it in a song called The Preacher and the Slave, and it was actually all about criticizing hypocritical preachers for telling poor people that they could have pie in the sky when they die, but then they actually did nothing about it in life today. Now, I agree mostly, actually, with his critique. If a preacher is telling a poor person about their heavenly reward, but then doing nothing about it in their situation today, he is a hypocrite and his faith is worth nothing. As James said earlier in this letter, faith without works is dead. But I disagree with the line in the song that perhaps you might not be familiar with. You see, that chorus, as you can see it on the screen, and that line, it finishes with everybody yelling out, 
that's a lie. You'll get pie in this. I can't remember how the tune goes. I listened to it this week. And everyone's like, that's a lie at the end. Well, Joe, James has a few words for you this morning. Because even though it is true that we should confront hypocrisy, hope in the sky is far more true and is far more important to life than you may realize. It's not just something that elites say to make the poor people feel like, uh, you know, feel better about their suffering. If pie in the sky when you die is a lie, then what hope do you have as you try to get by? This morning, we're going to explore our passage through four points. One, be patient. Two, be steadfast. Three, be faithful. And four, be hopeful. So with our Bibles open, our notepads and our hearts and our minds ready, let's explore this passage and begin at point one. Number one, be patient. Now, kids, you're in with us again for another week as we continue to uh, spin up Praise Factory and get volunteers ready to run that. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, one of the things that I absolutely hated was from my parents was when I asked them about something, and their response was, something that I wanted, and their response was, what do you think I'm going to say? I'll give you a clue, it's on the screen. James! James. <laughs> no? And they would say, be patient. I remember thinking to myself, why should I be patient? Uh, this, you know, I want that Lego set now. And if there's no reason for me to wait, why should I wait unnecessarily? What's, what is this be patient business? It's a valid question. Indeed, if you have the means to get what you want and you can get it immediately, it's immediately available to you, why would you wait? If you have the funds, if, you, if, it's, if it's in stock... You know, this kind of thinking is the norm in our culture where perhaps more than ever before in human history, you are able to get what you want immediately. And of course, impatience is not unique to us. I mean, James is writing this in the first century. Obviously, people were impatient. But perhaps because of our culture, we feel it more strongly when something we want does not come to us immediately. Do you know that feeling? And James, as you might remember from last week, he has just finished addressing the rich. Um, They were mistreating their poor laborers. And James pronounced God's judgment on them because they have chosen to store up treasure on earth rather than be rich towards God. And as we considered then, you don't have to be rich to do this. You can still be poor and have your hope and treasure in the things of this world. Well, James comes off the back of that and he addresses the oppressed poor in how they can be patient through this unjust treatment. So let's look at the first part of verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. James saying, therefore, connects this to the previous passage. And so, as I've just described, he's primarily thinking about the oppressed poor that have been treated very poorly. But notice that again, he uses that familiar term, brothers. 
which, as I've mentioned throughout uh, this series as we've been preaching through James, is a collective noun, uh, and in the original Greek, it, it can refer to everyone, and, and more often than not, it does. And so that's the same here. James is addressing both brothers and sisters in the church. And so, yes, his main focus is the oppressed poor. That's why he says, therefore. But what he has to say here still applies to all Christians, to all in the church. And what's his instruction? That's a warning. Did somebody go? Uh, Yeah, it'll take care of it. Thanks, brother. So yes, his, his main focus is the oppressed poor, but it's addressed to all. And what is his instruction? What does he say? Be patient until the coming of the Lord. The Greek word parousia, which usually just means coming or presence, it came to be used in the early church to the specific time when Jesus Christ would come back. And so Matthew 24, 3 is an example of this. You see that there. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And it's important to note that parousia doesn't always mean this, but I think we can be confident that this is what James is referring to, especially given the context. And he draws on a familiar image for the Jews there. Let's continue in verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You know, this image is not just familiar uh, to those who uh, know the farming practices of that region, but it is for anyone familiar with the Old Testament. It was an image that was often used by the writers of the Old Testament. Rain, especially the late rains, was often associated with God's blessing. We see an example of that in Joel 2.23. And, and now this is an understandable analogy. After all, if it didn't rain, then there would be no grain, and if there was no grain, then there would be no food. The sight of rain, especially the late rains, would have been uh, a tremendous relief and joy for the farmers of that region. And once again, believers from earlier times were able to connect the sovereignty and the provision of God behind things that they couldn't control more readily than we can. We're more prone to forgetting that God is sovereign over all things and that all that we have is from Him because we have a more convincing illusion of control in the West. But perhaps the recent floods in South Australia and the delays to our own food supplies here in the Territory might give us some cause and some reason to think that perhaps our societies and the systems that put them together are not actually as bulletproof as we might assume. You only need a couple more major things to go wrong for us in our supply chain for us to be in a pretty desperate situation. My mother, bless her heart, who's coming to visit from Melbourne, arriving on a plane this evening, was ready to bring groceries up with her on the plane because she thought we were in such a desperate situation. Had to assure her, it's okay, it's not that bad yet. So what's James's point? We depend on God for all things, but especially for the thing that will finally bring ultimate relief and blessing and joy. The second coming of Christ. 
James repeats again his instruction in verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. In case you missed it, being patient is one of the key instructions in this passage. Uh, This is the third time that James has used the word in just these two verses. So what does it look like then for us to be patient? How can we be patient? Well, the first thing to note is that James tells us to anticipate what is to come. Look forward, he says. Look ahead to the coming of Christ. These verses remind us that Christ's return is at hand. He is standing at the door. And this is totally in line with the way other biblical authors and Jesus himself talked about his second coming. Perhaps the most obvious is from Jesus himself through John's revelation in Revelation chapter 22, verse 7. Behold, I am coming soon. And it's important to know that when Christians, early Christians talked about it this way, the word soon is being used not in a temporal sense, but in a theological sense. And so when, when we say, we, we often associate the term soon with, with temporality. So when we say, I'll be there soon, then there's an expectation that not much time will pass between you saying that and then you actually throwing, throwing up, you showing up. But Christians over the last 2,000 years have not felt like Jesus has somehow failed them by not coming in their lifetimes. No, the early Christians, just like us, understood that, as Jesus said, no one knows the day or hour. If Jesus has said that, why would they suddenly expect that he was going to come back in their lives? And so Christians throughout the ages have held on to the hope and the knowledge that he will certainly return. And it doesn't matter if it's in the next second, hopefully before that alarm goes off again, or in 2,000 years, the hope remains and it is just as certain. We wait patiently and expectantly for Him to come again. Is this how you live? In God's sovereignty, He's given us a sense of what this feels like over the last couple of years. I mentioned my parents arriving tonight, Lord willing. Because of COVID, it'll be the first time I've actually seen them in person for two years. Many of us through this pandemic have now experienced that same kind of difficulty and longing to be with our loved ones. The necessity for patience before we can be in the presence of a loved one again. We have felt that. And for those who have tasted the the sweetness of being in the presence of loved ones, of actually having that met, being able to see their family and friends after needing to be patient for so long, well, you have a taste of what it will be like to see Jesus after so long a separation. Do you love and long to see Jesus in the same way? 
does your heart desire that even more so? Does the thought of seeing Him face to face bring even greater joy than the prospect of seeing other loved ones after an enforced separation? Because that's the kind of joy that James is pointing to. And could it be that perhaps one of the reasons we are impatient in our suffering is because we don't treasure seeing Jesus to the same degree. Brothers and sisters, our patience is lacking because our love for Jesus is lacking. In calling us to be patient, James reminds us to look forward to the reason why we can be patient. Can you imagine if I told you that in a year's time, you'll be able to be with loved ones and that you just need to be patient and and, and grow in that and that's a a good thing to grow. And then after a year, I said to you, well done. Wasn't that a great exercise in learning to be patient? You know what? There's actually no reward. You're not going to be going to see your loved ones, but aren't you glad that I helped you grow in patience? What's your response going to be? Of course, you're going to say, are you kidding me? Why would you lie to me and give me false hope like that? What good is learning the lesson if I don't actually receive the reward? This is why pie in the sky is about far more than just a vain hope that helps you get through the day. Brothers and sisters, do you long to see your Savior? Does such longing and the promise of His coming spur you on to be patient in this life, even in the midst of great suffering? As we look forward to His return, that hope enables us to be patient. But James also reminds us that we should look back, and that brings us to point two. Be steadfast. When James instructs his readers to establish your hearts in verse 8, I think he's using the term synonymously with steadfastness. At any rate, these first two points could really just be one point with two subpoints. That might work better for the average preacher who likes to keep things within three points. But the reason, and the reason I say that is because steadfastness is in many ways the same as being patient, but there is a certain resoluteness to it. Patience can be seen as a passive activity. You can be patient if you're not doing anything. So, for example, kids, you can be patient while you wait for your mum and dad to finish their conversations by just standing next to them, even though they told you 20 minutes ago that you'd be leaving soon. And at that point, you can remind them that they're not allowed to use the term soon the way Jesus uses the term soon. Steadfastness, on the other hand, it has a more active sense to it. Hence, establish your heart. And I think it's helpful to recognize that both are called for as we await the coming of the Lord. We'll come back to verse 9 a bit later, but let's read now from verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. 
You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James now introduces the term suffering here. Once again, he's recalling the oppressed poor from the previous passage. But surprisingly, the example that he gives is that of Job. And Job was certainly not in the camp of the oppressed poor. The beginning of Job tells us that he was very wealthy and he was actually extremely blessed by God. And the suffering that he went through was a result not of uh, rich oppressors somehow uh, being wrong or, or treating him poorly. No, the suffering that he went through was a result of God allowing Satan to remove all of the blessings that God had given him. It wasn't from people richer than him. And so this is one of the reasons why I think James is applying this to all of us. Suffering comes not just to the oppressed poor, but even to those who seemingly have everything. Yes, there are degrees of suffering. Some in life will suffer more than others in terms of the way we might rate that. But none are exempt. And especially as followers of Christ, it is one of a few things that we are guaranteed when we choose to follow Him. The Apostle Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. If you follow Christ, you are guaranteed suffering. And it's always worth us asking ourselves, brothers and sisters, are you experiencing or are you suffering on account of Christ? Now, I'm not suggesting that you go looking for suffering or try to consider you know, even the smallest inconvenience in your life as suffering so that you can tick the box and say, yes, I am experiencing it. I must be a follower. But it is worth asking the question of what your faith and your following of Christ has cost you. Because if it has cost you nothing, if you've had zero suffering as a result of it, then that might be a warning light on the dashboard. If you haven't experienced suffering yet, it is guaranteed to come. And James tells us to remain steadfast by looking at the prophets of old who remained steadfast even in the midst of it. In next week's passage, we will talk, he will talk about Elijah, but here he brings up Job. And look at what he says there at the beginning of the verse. We consider them blessed who remained steadfast. Given the context, I don't think James is just talking about the fact that Job is blessed because he was patient and steadfast. I think that is certainly in view. God sanctified Job through that process. But, well, sorry, he was sanctified through that process and that trial produced in him a steadfastness and a more perfected faith. Does that sound familiar? James begins this whole letter talking about exactly that. Those who can view their trials and suffering through this lens and who remain 
steadfast in holding on to Jesus and can count it as a joy, they can consider themselves blessed. Why? Because it presses you deeper into him. But again, given the context, I think James might also be alluding to something else. The word purpose there in verse 11 in the Greek is the word telos, which basically means finish or end or finally, that that kind of idea. And given that meaning, it can also be used to mean purpose. It happens in English too. We, We talk about someone's end as their purpose. If you read all the way to the end of Job, you'll discover that God ultimately vindicates Job and blesses him more than even before his suffering. I have no problem with the translation of purpose here in the ESV. If you look up the NIV, they opt for the other. I don't have a problem with it because I think Job being refined through his suffering was clearly in view of God's purpose. And that in itself displays the Lord's compassion and mercy. As we saw a few weeks ago, God mercifully denies us the things that we ask for, which are wrong things to ask for, that He knows are not good for us. And that He is a good Father who gives us good things, whether we would agree that they are good or not. But I also think that God displays His compassion and mercy in the way that He finally rewards us with things that we do not deserve. He did that with Job. And He will do it with all His children who have turned from their sin to trust in Christ. And that will come finally, at the last, in the end, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You might think to yourself, but wait a second, if I remember Job correctly, he wasn't exactly the kind of you know, person that I would hold up as an example of patience and steadfastness. I mean, didn't he grumble and isn't that why God comes in at the end and he, you know, he hammers Job and, and puts him in his place? Well, it's certainly true that Job brings all of his complaints and his questions to God. And it's also true that God does put him in his place. But it's also true that God himself commends Job. Look at Job 42, 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the, Tem- uh, the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. There is an important lesson to grasp here. Patience and steadfastness doesn't mean that we try and pretend like it's all a bed of roses. Mind you, that doesn't mean we forget who God is either. We don't talk down to Him as though He's below us. That's why God put him in his place, and that's why Job repented after hearing from the Lord. But if you are prone to trying to fake it till you make it, recognize that God can handle and desires for you to be real with him. Don't let your prayers just be rehearsed lines that you can say without engaging your heart. There's nothing wrong with planned or prepared prayers. Just don't hide behind them. As the Scottish minister William Barclay put it, 
Job's is no groveling, passive, unquestioning submission. Job struggled and questioned and sometimes even defied. But the flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. The Lord called Job, my servant, because even though his trials were great, his trust in the Lord was greater. Unlike Eliphaz and his mates, who like to philosophize about the God out there who does these things, Job knew God, and he went to God in the midst of his suffering. Brothers and sisters, how are you actively reminding yourself of the Lord's compassion and mercy to his servants in the midst of your suffering? Perhaps that suffering looks like the struggle of getting up every morning, knowing that you have to face the day doing the exact same thing that you did yesterday, or knowing that you are in a leaky boat and all you've got to bail it out is a teaspoon. Perhaps it looks like a a deep discontentment with the life that you've been given. Perhaps it looks like wrestling with demons from the past, decisions that you've made that you know you can't change, but that you live with the consequences of today. Perhaps it looks like losing money and treasures and comforts and things that you are used to. James is reminding us that we may look to those who have gone before us in order to find examples that we can follow. Remember the prophets of old. And I don't think it would be a stretch to say that we should do that also with other brothers and sisters in Christ. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ, I think he's laying down a general pattern that we can also follow. And so when we see examples of others who are imitating Christ in a way that is worth imitating in the midst of their suffering, then we should be encouraged by that and spurred on to do the same. So even though perhaps none of us in this room are in the same bucket as James's immediate audience of the oppressed poor here, we have no shortage of brothers and sisters all over the globe, even right now, who are experiencing that exact injustice. I've said it before, let me say it again. Let me encourage you to download the Open Doors or the Voice of the Martyrs app or sign up for their mailing lists. These organizations are dedicated to our persecuted brothers and sisters across the world. I personally pray for one person or group using the app once a week. And what happens is that not only am I joining the chorus of other saints who are lifting up these members of the universal body of Christ, but God uses them to encourage me. When I pray for brothers and sisters in in Pakistan or in China or in Indonesia, and I hear of them remaining steadfast in their faith, even in the midst of great suffering, I'm encouraged and I am spurred on to continue waiting for the Lord and establishing my own heart just as they are. If the hope that they hold on to, often in the face of death, is the same hope that I have, then that is an encouragement to me in the midst of my own suffering. 
Do you see why pie in the sky when you die must be something that goes beyond a false hope that just makes you feel better? Our sure hope and the reason we can be patient and be steadfast is because He is coming. His people have held on in the past and they hold on today. We hold on because He is coming. But that's not all we do while we wait. And that brings us to point three. Be faithful. We must be patient while we wait, knowing that He is coming. We must be steadfast while we wait, pressing deeper into the trials and suffering that we experience, knowing that God is mercifully perfecting our faith. And we must also be faithful. Just as Jesus warns his followers not to be like the five virgins who were unprepared for the coming of the bridegroom in Matthew 25, James also warns us. Let's go back to verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The reason I skipped over this verse initially and wanted to come back to it was so that I could highlight to you those bigger, broader attributes of being steadfast and patient. But here and in verse 12, James gives us more specific instructions about the way that we are to live while we remain steadfast and patient. And we see here his instruction, do not grumble against one another. It still amazes me that this is a command in the Bible. I find it incredible to think that something like grumbling could be considered a sin. And not only that, not only just a sin, but one serious enough for James to actually issue this warning. Look at the reason that he gives for telling his readers not not to grumble against one another. What does he say? So that you may not be judged. Again, as we've seen throughout this letter, the deeper issue is the heart. As the Israelites grumbled against God in the wilderness and displayed a fundamental lack of trust and contentment in God, so our grumbling displays the same. You may not think it's a big deal when you just kind of mutter a couple of words here, but it displays a heart that has a fundamental distrust and lack of of faith in God. That said, this grumbling likely points to the issues within the church that James has already been talking about, that we've seen over the last few weeks, the quarrels and fights that come from ungodly desires, and even more specifically, those speaking evil against one another, as we saw in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Now, that's also a relevant text because in it, James talks about the judge. And James reminds us here in verse 9, that the judge is standing at the door. Now, is he referring to God the Father as the judge? Or is he referring to Jesus 
as the judge. In some respects, it doesn't matter because Revelation 5 portrays Jesus being in the midst of the throne with God the Father. But I think James here is referring specifically to Jesus, given that in the previous verses he's been speaking about Christ's return. And so what this highlights to us is that the coming of Christ will certainly be a day of great joy and a day of great relief as he comes to save the ones who have turned from their sin and trusted in him. But for those who have chosen instead to keep living in their sin and to keep loving it, for them there will be judgment. And that judgment is serious enough that James wants to issue this warning. There is an urgency to that which we ought to pay attention to. As we saw last week, none of us are promised tomorrow. And life is but a mist. Do you live as though the judge is standing at the door? How would that change your life if you knew that was true? There is one way that it changes our lives. And James elaborates on that in verse 12. Let's look at that. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Although this seems like a, a bit of a random thing to say is above all, it's possible that James is using this as a bit of an introductory or a transitional phrase. 1 Peter 4.8 might be another example of this kind of usage. Another possibility is that James is saying above all because he is wanting to focus on the integrity and the faithfulness of our words, which has been something of a focus throughout his letter. Whether he regards it to be above all or not, it's clear that James considers this to be a significant point. And if this sounds familiar, it's because Jesus says almost exactly the same thing in Matthew 5, 33 to 37. And once again here, James displays his detailed knowledge of the Sermon on the Mount. And once again, as he did in verse 9, James gives us a warning of judgment. Or here in verse 9, of condemnation. Now, just to clarify, Jesus and James are not talking about using bad language. So he's not talking about that kind of swearing when we say swearing. I remember as a kid hearing these verses used as a biblical basis to not use naughty words. Uh, now, whether Christians should or shouldn't use naughty words is another discussion, one that I won't wade into right now. But you can't have that discussion based on these verses. Jesus and James, they don't have in mind at all naughty words when they use the term swear there. Now, kids, if you are listening to what I just said, that does not mean that there is no reason in the Bible to not swear. Okay, you, you, you can't go back to your parents and say, 
well, J.R. said that the Bible's okay with us using naughty words, because James wasn't talking about that, right? Just to be clear. Good. I'm glad you all understand. Though James here, he's, he's talking about making a careless or a false oath. A promise. And oaths were actually something that were somewhat normal in the Old Testament. We saw an example in our King series when Jezebel said this to Elijah. So may the gods do to me and more also. That was her making an oath. Of course, she's not a believer, but even those who were used the same formula like Ruth. And so James here is reiterating Jesus' overturning of that practice. And the point is that because we don't own heaven or earth or have the kind of sovereignty even over our own bodies, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, you can't even change the color of one of your hairs at will, then we should not presume that we can promise that something will happen. Now, there are examples of bona fide followers of Jesus using oaths or voicing the same principle. Paul, for example, in Romans 1.9, he calls upon God as his witness in the things that he is saying. That's, that's you know, akin to making an oath. But one of the reasons that Jesus called out this practice of making oaths was because he was confronting the scribes and Pharisees of their hypocrisy. They would make oaths for selfish purposes that would serve them with no appreciation of what they were doing. We see a snippet of that just before Jesus uh, talks about this in Matthew 23. You can read the, the, the next verses too where he goes on and, and continues. The point is, both Jesus and James are showing how a Christian is somebody who is marked by the integrity of their words. So even though, uh, as a Christian, if you are ever called to a witness stand in a court and you have to make an oath based on the Bible, for a Christian, that's fine. And for a Christian, that should be totally unnecessary. That's what let your yes be yes and your no be no means. Do you see the purpose of this instruction? God's desire for us as followers of Christ is that we would live lives of such honesty and integrity that we don't need to convince others of that by making an oath. It means having a word that counts. It means that if you are doing business with a Christian, a handshake is as good as a signature. How does this display itself in your life? Let me give you an example. This week, I picked up a bed and a base off Facebook Marketplace for my dear mother and father for them to sleep on. And the guy who was selling the base had this in the description on Facebook Marketplace. Due to so many numerous people being flaky, the bed is back up and free to a good home. If you want this message, first in, first serve. Unlike the others before you, please don't waste my time. Pick up only. Farah. Or Farah, depending on where you live. That look familiar? In case you're unaware, flaky means unreliable. It seems that he had plenty of people say that they would buy it off him, but then they never followed through. 
If you've ever tried to buy or sell something off Facebook Marketplace or Gumtree, you'll know that this is not uncommon. I messaged him and assured him that I wouldn't be flaky and that I would pick it up on Thursday night. That's exactly what I did with Glenn and Zach. And I gave him my phone number to ensure that he could have some confidence in my word. This is just as much letting my yes be yes and my no be no as it is to speak honestly. Brothers and sisters, where does flakiness show up in your life? Where is the integrity of your words unreliable? Maybe it's in tardiness, saying you'll be somewhere at a certain time and then not being there. Maybe it's in saying that you will do something and then putting it off, or perhaps just not doing it at all. Maybe it's in telling somebody that you will be at their thing, their party, their event, and then bailing because, you know, you, you've got a better offer. What about recognizing that you have failed someone in something or you have sinned against them and instead of owning your mistake and confessing it, you choose rather to hide it or to bury it to try and protect your reputation? I pray that as Christians, we would be known in our city and in our circles as people whose word is reliable. May Christ's name be honored in the integrity and in the honesty of his people. In these ways, James reminds us that when the judge returns, he will be returning for the faithful. And so James calls us to be faithful, especially in our words. We are not to grumble against one another, and we are to have such a reliable word that our integrity does not require the making of an oath. I don't know about you, but if Jesus was coming back to judge me based on how well I've done, even in just these matters, then I'm, I'm headed for condemnation. And that brings us to our fourth and final point. Be hopeful. In many ways, this is the overall heading of the passage. We are to be hopeful for the return of Christ by being patient, by being steadfast, and by being faithful. But if I only left you with those first three points, then I'll be leaving you with a crushing burden that will ultimately condemn you. And that's because our hopefulness is made up of, of not just our willingness to be these three things, not just in our striving to be them, but it is in our trusting and putting our faith in the one who powerfully and graciously works them in us. After all, who among us has shown perfect patience? 
Who among us has remained unflinchingly steadfast in the face of suffering? Who among us has never grumbled against a brother or sister or never failed to follow through on their word? James alludes to that famous revelation of the Lord's name in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But the truth is, you and I belong in the second half of that verse, of that saying. Who will by no means clear the guilty. We are the guilty. And our sin is deserving of condemnation. We are the impatient. We are the fickle. We are the flaky. But this is why James reminds us that the Lord is also compassionate and merciful. You see, by its very definition, mercy is not deserved. And God displays His compassion and His mercy to us supremely in His Son, Jesus. The reason we talk about Him coming again is because He has already come. And He has promised to come again. Keep reading on in Matthew 25, after the parable of the ten virgins, and you will find Jesus talking about His final judgment. He will come in His glory. And make no mistake, on that day, the judge will separate the sheep and the goats. And if it were entirely down to whether we were able to be spotless sheep or not, then the return of the judge would not be a day that any of us would be eagerly anticipating. It would be more like the feeling a murderer has who's waiting for the judge to come through the door and pronounce their death sentence. Only much, much worse. But friends, the good news is that God is compassionate and merciful. And there is still time to receive His mercy. His compassion. It is in these last days, in this time, while the judge is still on the other side of the door, that He beckons you to grab hold of that, to grab hold of His mercy. Jesus, the God-man who walked around the Judean countryside 2,000 years ago, was the one through whom the Lord's mercy would be on greatest display. We've seen the purpose of God even more clearly than Job because in Jesus, the fullness of God's purpose was revealed. Job suffered, but Jesus suffered for the sins of his servants. Jesus was perfectly patient. He was impeccably steadfast. He was unfailingly faithful. And his greatest faithfulness 
was shown to us when he suffered and died on a Roman cross to receive the judgments and condemnations for our sin that we deserve so that we could receive the mercy of God that we don't deserve. The Christian message of the good news, what we call the gospel, is that even though our sin condemns us to judgment, even though we rightly deserve to be among the goats, that when we put our faith in Christ, we receive the Lord's mercy. And so for every person who turns from their sin, who trusts in Jesus, the day of the coming of the Lord is not one to fear, but one to eagerly anticipate with joy. Because the day of judgment will be our final day of salvation. His coming, His end, that day is when the Good Shepherd brings His sheep home to their eternal fold. If you have yet to turn from your sin and to trust in Christ, For salvation, how I would love to welcome you into the Good Shepherd's fold. Would you consider Christ today? And brothers and sisters, are you looking to Christ and preparing yourself like a bride waiting for her bridegroom? Brothers and sisters, Be patient, because He is patient with you. Be steadfast, because His steadfast love is towards you. Be faithful, because He is faithful towards you. And be hopeful, because our present sufferings are nothing in comparison to the glory that will be revealed at the coming of the Lord. You see, that pie in the sky when we die, that we are waiting for, that is no vain hope. That is no false hope. It's not an illusion or a grand trick that God is playing on us. It is the end of His compassion and mercy. And it is because of Christ, both His first and second coming, that we may be patient, steadfast, faithful, and hopeful. Hold on. He's coming. Let's pray. Lord, as Paul wrote in Romans 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Father, we are so often impatient, short-sighted, 
fickle and faithless. We lose sight of your purpose and we lose sight of your end in our suffering. Please open our eyes to see the Savior who loves us, who was and who is patient with us, steadfast in his love towards us, faithful to us, and provides us with hope for eternity in the midst of our suffering. He is the suffering servant in whom we hope. May you make us more like him as we await his return. We ask this in his name. Amen.